Dr. Bob's daughter-in-law, uh, who is the alcoholic member of this uh, couple, and a very, very special lady we've come to know in the last couple days, uh, from Nakona, Texas, Betty S. Thank you so much, Lynn. My name is Betty and I am an alcoholic. If you can't hear me, please let me know. Um, through the grace of God and the loving concern of the people in this fellowship, I have not had a drink since March the 13th of 1979. And of course, I'm very grateful for that. I'm also very grateful and thrilled and privileged to be here to speak with you people and to enjoy your company. I, I really appreciate the invitation that we've had. I want to thank the committee and Lynn has been so kind to us, as has everyone else. We've had a wonderful time. Uh, I can call myself a triple winner, actually, because I was eligible to be an Alateen had they had such a program at the time. I could also have been an Al-Anon if I'd known of that program. And then I ended up an alcoholic. So. I'm a triple winner, if you want to look at it like that, and I am my own family group. I can have a meeting whenever I want to, call meeting, and uh, it makes it sort of handy. <laughs> anyway, I love Al-Anon. It's helpful to me, and I go to Al-Anon meetings, though AA has to be my primary and priority program. Uh, and I must share with you, this joke came not from an Al-Anon, but, I mean, not from an AA, but from an Al-Anon. Uh, one of my very favorite Al-Anons said to me one day, Betty, do you know why Al-Anons always close their eyes when they make love? And I said, why, no, why would Al-Anons close their eyes when they make love? And he said, well, it's because they just can't stand to see someone else having a good time. I was probably predisposed to become an alcoholic and uh, for, for a number of reasons, genetically and so on. Um, I was uh, never very friendly with myself and I was fortunate enough in my growing up that a lot of honors came to me as a student and even when I went on to college. A lot of good things happened to me, but to tell you the truth, None of this ever made me feel any better about myself. I don't think anything could have made me feel better about myself. I always wanted to escape from myself, and uh, I was quite young when I first read the words by E.E. E. Cummins and understood them instantly when he said, everywhere I go, I go too, and that spoils everything. And then, you know, Groucho Marx made the remark, I wouldn't dream of joining a country club that would have me as a member, and I could understand that too. So that was how I always felt about myself. I was uh, fortunate enough that uh, Bob and I started dating and uh, we wanted, I wanted to meet his parents and of course they wanted to meet me when we got serious and uh, decided to uh, marry. So we flew to Akron to meet his parents. This was in the early 40s. I, they met us at the airport and uh, mom and dad, as I came to call them, uh, treated me as a daughter from the beginning and loved me and I loved them at, in return. Now, I don't say this in retrospect, but at the time I knew them. I loved them very dearly and uh, they reciprocated. At any rate, they met us at the airport and they started talking about a meeting they were going to that night at King's School and then mentioned it several times. I had the slightest idea what they were talking about, and I said, Bob, what is this meeting they're talking about going to tonight at King's School? And he said, for the first hint I'd ever heard, he said, well, there is an organization that my father helped co-found, and that's what we're going to uh, hear about. And I said no more. I just dutifully went along. And uh, it was truly one of the most dramatic moments of my life. As I sat there at this AA meeting, King's School room was filled. They had gotten so large they could no longer meet at 855 Ardmore and started to meet at King's School. A dentist from Cleveland got up to speak, and I didn't know whether I was going to hear about PTA or what. I had the slightest notion. This man started to talk about alcoholism and how his problem had been solved. 
Well, my mother and I were secretly at home in Clovis, New Mexico, pouring the booze down the sink because we didn't know what else to do. I didn't know there was a solution to my father's problem, and here was a living example of a solution standing in front of me. I don't know if you can imagine my joy and my happiness. I was so elated uh, that Bob could see how elated I was, but he didn't understand why. He'd been to our home for a dinner numerous times, but he didn't know that my father was a... He hadn't known him sober, and he just didn't realize he was in that bad shape. At any rate, as soon as that meeting was over, I rushed up to Dr. Bob, and with all my heart, I said, oh, you must be so proud to have co-founded a wonderful fellowship like this. And man, had I ever said the wrong thing. He thundered down at me and he said, Oh no, I have only been used. I'm only an agent. And I like to tell that because, that, uh, you know, he did not want that put upon him. And uh, I do feel that he and Bill both were used by a higher power. And uh, he, he had a lot of humility. Now, you see, when you're in the middle of history, being made, you don't know it. I didn't know that King's School was historical. I didn't know when I met Sister Ignatia and all these people who had their stories in the Red Book that, that it was a, a really a time of history making. But I, I got to know and love these people. And Mom and Dad and Bob and I went to many things. They would invite us to their friends' homes for dinner. And, and we had lots of fun together. We played bridge. We had a lot of laughter. We actually lived at 855 Ardmore, moved from New Mexico to Ohio, and lived at 855 till we found a home in Cleveland that we bought. And I'm always grateful for that time because we got to be together, spend time together. And I had been raised in a good family, a happy family. My father's uh, drinking, I think, had a minimum of uh, trauma to me because I knew what a wonderful humorous, spiritual, great person he was before he had an alcoholic problem, and that was a very uh, short period of time that he did have the alcoholic problem. At any rate, uh, I knew what he was like, so I, I don't think I went through the, some of the bad times that many people had. At any rate, um, I remember one time, see, Bob and I had no money, and his parents had very little money. But one day, Dad showed up, and he had bought us the most beautiful couch. I don't know where he'd found it. It was gold and maroon, and it was silk material, and it was just a gorgeous piece of furniture. Well, Bob and I were young and dumb, and we had always wanted some sectional furniture, so he got a saw and sawed it in two. <laughs> to give you an indication of the kind of people they are, never did they express any irritation, any anger <laughs> over what we had done. If it had been our kids, we'd have killed them for doing something like that. So anyway, I've always been blessed by that time with them. And of course, when we moved back to Texas, they came to see us and we went to see them. And uh, that relationship will be a blessing to me as long as I live. Okay, then anyway, after that first night, I did not say a word to mom or dad or Bob about why I wanted a big book, but I knew I was going to get a big book and take it home to my father. I rushed in when we got home from Ohio to my mother and I said, Mother, we've got an answer here. Here's an answer to dad's problem. And she was as excited as I was. We rushed to tell my father the wonderful news. And guess what? He was not nearly as enthusiastic as we were. <laughs> We thought he'd snap, you know, just jump at the chance. But anyway, to make a long story short, he was uh, pretty far along, and he was ready to go in a short time. So I drove him to a place to dry out, uh, and uh, he ended up with a big book there in Clovis, New Mexico. And a few days later, a man from California, Bob D., who is still living, appeared. And he went to my dad's shop. My father had been fired and uh, very cleverly, I thought, had decided to go in business for himself. And I still think that's a darn good idea if you're going to drink on the job, uh, you know, because <laughs> you just don't get fired that way. And that's what dad had done. 
and he had beautiful, a curio shop with beautiful Indian rugs and Indian jewelry and so on. Anyway, Bob D. came from California, and he came into Dad's office. They had had some drinks before previously, years back. And uh, he started talking to my dad about this book, and my father reached down, and he pulled out the big book, and he said, is this the book you, you're talking about? And he said, well, yes. And so from Akron and from California came the two big books together to start the first group in New Mexico. Now, my father passed away 26 years ago, but we were invited back to a reunion uh, just a few years ago in Clovis, and I walked into this humble little clubhouse on Axtell Street, and to my astonishment, there was a beautiful oil portrait there of my father hanging on the wall. People still love him, they still remember him, and they call it the Pete Anderson Group often. And uh, I know when my father did pass away, the most comforting thing that was said to me was by an AA, and he said, Betty, he is alive today in the hearts of hundreds of people he has counseled. And this is not my story, but it's a part of my life, and I can't tell my story without sharing this with you. So, you know, it did have a very happy ending. Well, uh, we have two sons and two daughters. Now, we had two daughters through TCU and Fort Worth and, and college, and we, our, third, our first son was our third child, and he was starting college, and lo and behold, I found out I was pregnant. This is 18 years apart. Now, this is called spacing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was downtown one day, and I had this last little kid by the hand, and Mrs. Reed walked up to me, and she said, Oh, Mrs. Smith, is that your grandchild? And I said, No, my grandchild's a lot older than this. <laughs> <laughs> this is my kid. <laughs> And that kid is still going to college. He's in graduate school. He has two more years to go. And uh, so far, none of our children have any addiction, but you know, you never know. And he's 25 years old. He's studying to be an optometrist. And uh, who knows, if he ever gets here, I want you to welcome him to your meeting. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he's been a joy in our lives. Now, uh, I, I know that some people have no spiritual faith. That is their option. Some people have a passionate belief in the great whatever. That's their option. But I must tell you in all sincerity that when I was growing up, I at one time in my life had what has been called a thou-I personal relationship with God as I understand him. It was the most happy time of my life. And to be terribly candid about it, I have not at this time regained that closeness, but I'm always going to search for it, and I know if with an effort on my part and a dedication that I will someday have that relationship again. But having had that relationship with God in my life, you can imagine the remorse and the guilt that was to come to me later on in my life. Bob and I were drinking partners for many years. I was not an instant alcoholic. It made me terribly, terribly ill. And it was only because of extreme perseverance and determination <laughs> for many years that I made the grade as an alcoholic. <laughs> Real dedication. Um, and uh, now that I think of it, as Bob and I went on our merry way and knowing a little bit as we did about alcoholism, I think we had all the perception of a cabbage <laughs> as far as <laughs> drinking problems that might come along. Someone would, we'd hear of someone who joined AA and we'd say, oh, good for them, good for them. You know, it was just wonderful. And we, we loved the people. We would visit occasionally when they would find out that Bob was Dr. Bob's son, we'd go visit. And they were fun people, they were laughing and, and we loved them. But, you know, it was not a part of our lives. And uh, so we went about our, our business. And uh, also, this is, is making a long story short, too. Alcohol, when I think of the word, I think of the word insidious because it entered our house a guest. It became a host. And then it became the master. I never shall forget the day when it occurred to me with just all the glaring truth in the world that I had passed the point of no return. And I thought, 
you will never get better. You will only get worse. You cannot ever back up again because it's progressive. And that was a fateful time when, when that occurred to me. But in the meantime, you see, I had started to water the bottles. I, I bought cheese boo cheap booze because we didn't have any money. I didn't worry about the bottle going down because I'd just fill them back up with water. And I'd buy this cheap stuff and Bob would take a drink of it and say, oh, this is so smooth and I know it's cheap, but it's really smooth, it's a good drink. And I'd think, well, it should be, it's half water. And uh, well, the most embarrassing moment in my drinking, one of the most embarrassing was that one day, actually we saved our money and we finally made a trip to Europe. It was just a, a moment we'll always treasure was getting to go to Europe and we were in France. We'd rented a car and we just stuck out, struck out like we had good sense and drove through the Alps and every place. Anyway, we're in France and he said, uh, let's buy a bottle of Pernod. I said, what's that? And he said, well, it's a liqueur. And I said, fine, because, you know, as long as it wasn't beer. Beer to me was sort of in the status of sugar and flour and basics, you know. And I didn't like it anyway. But uh, so we went upstairs to, to our room in this hotel. And he went into the bathroom, and when he did that, I rushed over to the bottle. He had pushed my button, and I got that top off as fast as I could, and I took about three slugs of this straight Pernod, as many as I thought I dared before he came out, and rushed over to the sink, and it uh, was bourbon-like looking liqueur, and I filled it up with water, and the instant the water hit it, it turned milky. <laughs> this has never happened to me before. I, I had no idea how to cope with this, and I thought, I've got to think fast. What can I say? And he walked out of the bathroom. He took one look at that bottle, and he said, Betty, have you put water in that Pernod? And I looked him right in the eyeballs, and I said, why no? I never have thought of a better answer. <laughs> That's all I could think of. Well... When I decided and knew that I had passed the point of no return, you think the first thing I would do was say, okay, the only thing I can do is go to A. That was not the first thing I thought of. The first thing I thought of was, all right, I will keep myself as well-groomed as possible. I will uh, keep my house as, as neat as I possibly can because the last thing I wanted was to be thought of as a slob. I just had a horror of that. And so... What I decided to do, see, was to make the outside appearance as much unlike what was going on inside me, to deny everything that was going on inside me as much as I humanly possibly could. And to me, that is a total lack of spiritual integrity. And it is a most terrible, painful way to live. And that is what I decided to do off the... Uh, right off the bat, I'd go into the drugstore sometimes and I'd, I'd look, now I'm telling you the truth, I'd look at these bottles and it would say, desiccated liver tablets. Well, I was feeling terrible and I knew I was hurting myself physically and I thought, I wonder if my liver is desiccated or if it, I should take these pills and make it desiccated. I just... And I thought, I know that probably it's really important, but I didn't know whether it's important to take them or not to take them. <laughs> so I just never did take them. And later I had a friend who was in the program and he was a pharmacist and I said, tell me what desiccated liver tablets are. And he said, I don't know. <laughs> so maybe someday I'll find out. I never had. Anyway, Bob and I had, we even had blackouts together. Uh, uh, he hid his bottles, I hid my bottles. And then we had a, what we called our common bar. And it usually had a baby, two bottles, uh, maybe a half a bottle of wine and a bottle of uh, bourbon, a half a bottle of vodka. It was never much. And that was our, our common bar. And uh, then he hid his bottles and I hid my bottles. But I was a lot better at finding his bottles than he was at finding my bottles. <laughs> and I drank an awful lot more than he did, I can tell you that. So anyway, Finally, I got to the point where I, was, I couldn't go to AA, and I'll tell you why. I lived in a town of less than 3,000 people. There would be no anonymity. We had moved to a town, so help me, they'd built a public swimming pool, 
and the town has oh so many churches and it's split wide open over the issue of mixed bathing i've never heard of that and i want to tell you if you don't know what mixed bathing is that is when the men and the women go in the swimming pool at the very same time well i knew that if they found out that i was a woman alcoholic there was no telling what they'd do to me it scared me to pieces to think about it i knew that they would think i was at least a woman of the street you know <laughs> i knew there was gonna, they were going to think i was a lot of things that i was not i'd been a good mother three of my kids didn't know i was an alcoholic the fourth kid the little one that came along late in life knew i was physically ill but he didn't know why i wasn't falling down i was not disgracing myself i had golly i did everything that i thought a mother should do i was a room mother i i did all that sort of thing the pta bit you know uh all those things i did i attended everything my children were in that sort of stuff uh but uh, anyway that was where i ended up and i i thought well i would have no anonymity and the people would judge me terribly and besides it would be a disgrace to my father and my father-in-law if i went to AA. it was out of the question for me <laughs> And if anybody had ever ever come to me and said, well, I couldn't possibly go to AA because I'm a doctor, I would have known exactly what they meant because that was the way I thought. And I had so much false pride, you see. I, I, that was almost my destruction was my false pride. Would to God I'd thought of going even to Dallas to a meeting or something. See, I could have done that to get my feet wet. But I, it didn't occur to me I could do that. Well, I used to have loner meetings, and that was this. I had a tape by Dr. Bob, and I'm telling you truly, if you don't have it, I think you would love it. He made this talk in Detroit. Uh, he, they asked him for the record to start at the beginning of when he and Bill met, and uh, he goes through that, and then on the other side of the tape, he talks about his personal philosophy and the struggle he had to love, truly love his fellow man. It's a beautiful tape. And I love it to this day, I play it. And uh, I would play that tape, I would get the big book out, and I had the spiritual faith. And I thought, I can do this without going into AA and showing my face. And I tried. Oh, God knows how I tried. And I simply could not do it. I would pray about it so much, and I'd think, why can't I do it? I've prayed so hard, and I've got the faith and the big book. And I don't know, but I thought perhaps maybe uh there was a reason for that maybe i was meant to go on into the program and to say listen you can have skid row in your living room couch you don't have to be under a bridge it doesn't make any difference whether you come from yale or from jail from park avenue or park bench you know you don't have to be down and out in a bum i i had a i guess you'd call it a high bottom though i could tell you from the inside looking out I don't know how my despair could have been any deeper. You know, I think that if we're in AA, we have a feeling of shared brokenness. There was sort of a, a tumor of loneliness that was blooming in my gut, and such despair, and, and no one to share it with. It was, uh, it was beyond words, and if you've been there, you know what I am talking about. Now, Bob never once asked me to stop drinking. Not one time. He really didn't want me to stop drinking. He wanted me to just drink like a normal person, to cut back. And I'd think, well, that's perfectly logical. That's reasonable. That's what I'll do. And so I'd try to do it. And every time I would fail, every time. Sometimes I'd think, well, I believe they even taper off in the hospital. I'm just trying to quit too quickly. I'll just taper off. And you know how that ended up every time. And I tried every such way you could think of, you know, just beer, just wine, drinking just after five o'clock, all that sort of stuff. None of it ever worked out. Well, I tell you what I think was the matter with, with Bob was uh, I have a book by Mel B. written in Ohio, and the name of it is, Is There Life After Sobriety? I thought of it when we had heard that wonderful talk today at noon. Uh, what do you do after you get in AA? Who are your friends? What do you do with your time? You give up all this fun. How do you ever have any fun again? My gosh, I hadn't had any fun for years, but that's what I thought in my mind. You give up all this fun. 
Well, every time I get sick today, physically sick, I'm just grateful the entire time because I think, I used to feel like this all the time, and now it's just once in a while when I'm sick. <laughs> and so, anyway, um, you know, uh, when you join AA, it's not like you're joining the Lions Club. It's a struggle for survival, an actual struggle to either live or die. And uh, it's a pretty big decision. Well, I, I got so desperate that I didn't care what happened. And when I was at my worst one afternoon, very providentially, the phone rang and this man says, Betty, we're gonna start a group in Dakota for people who have a problem like you and me, will you come? And of course, my first thought was, I'm a closet drinker, how could he know I have a problem? Well, see what had happened was, the day had come when I could no longer wait until I went to the grocery store and the beauty shop and all that sort of thing and came home and then have a drink. The day had come when I had to have a drink before I left the house. And somehow somebody in that town had smelled it on my breath. It got out. You know, <laughs> you know how those things, will, secrets will get out. And it had gotten out. So I told John, yes, I would go to the meeting. I went to that meeting that night and at 4.30 the next morning I woke up in a panic and I thought you have done some dumb things in your life but undoubtedly this takes the cake. There is no way in the world you can go through with, it, through with this program. They say just 24 hours at a time and I thought what an order I can't go through with it. And I really thought I could not for 24 hours and I still don't know how I did it but I, I hung on that first 24 hours and I didn't go to a treatment center. I don't advise this because it was the most torturous, terrible time. What saved my life probably was that I would work 13, even 15 hours a day out in the yard, very hard physical work. I hesitate to say this because it sounds like a big exaggeration, but that was what I did, very hard physical work. And I think it helped to save my life. And then at night I would go to meetings. This John who helped me so much was not 100% well. He was, he's a pharmacist, he wasn't drinking, but he was into a bunch of stuff he shouldn't have been into, but I didn't know that. And he helped me out of, out of the love. He, he would come by and he would take me to all these meetings. And I tell you what I learned from that. I love him unconditionally because he loved me enough to come by and give me that help. And then after that, I heard Sister B talk and she says, you know, God can use a crooked pencil to draw a straight line. And he doesn't care who he uses when he wants to make a point. And I thought, well, isn't that wonderful? Because I have so many character defects to this day. And yet I know that I don't have to be worthy, unquote, to be used. And I'm grateful for that. Because uh, I never would feel like I was worthy to be used, I don't believe. So he was, he was able to help me. And to this day, I'm very grateful. And he has straightened out and... I think he's helped more, more people in, in that little town than anyone because, uh, he, well, this, this young man who is so retarded, he has about three years of sobriety, and I believe that John thinks no man shall fall so low but what love may lift his head, and he's not going to take a chance on missing anyone. Well, uh, Bob, uh, was he was dragging his feet because this was going to be a change in our lifestyle and he was like I was what do you do after after sobriety what do you do and uh, so he he continued to drink and there was extreme hostility between the both of us for some time and we had grown apart of course and had no communication for quite a while and uh, I kept going to my meetings and I, I was just hanging on by a thread I remember one day I said Bob I know that one day I'm going to start to feel better physically and mentally and emotionally, but if it doesn't hurry up and happen, I'm not going to make it because I'm hanging on by a thread. And that's how close it was for me. Well, a couple of months after I came into the program, he decided to go into Al-Anon. He decided on his own that maybe his life would be happier if he didn't drink. 
I couldn't ask him not to. But I'm so grateful that he came up with this solution because sometimes when he drank, he got sort of the personality of a porcupine. And I don't know if I could have kept my sobriety and my marriage together if we had continued like that. But I hasten to add that this man has been the most marvelous support in my life. He went into Al-Anon and he served and did a lot of jobs that I know he didn't relish doing. And uh, I'm just so grateful. And I do know that some of you make it without the support of your spouse. And my God, I take my hat off to you. I don't know how you do it because I just barely made it with his support and his love and his friendship. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Now, I don't want to... Um, to keep you long, but a couple of things that, that I want to share with you. One thing Bob and I heard in Albuquerque, we heard a woman say, the person I was will drink again. If I do not continue to go in this program and take advantage of the sharing and caring with you, I will insidiously and slowly become the person I used to be, and the person I used to be will drink again. My husband tells me the Al-Anon he used to be will get sick again, and we have seen that happen. Uh, I know that overconfidence can be a real killer in this program. All of us, I think, know that overconfidence is a real killer. My friend General Custer was the person that told me about that. <laughs> and, <laughs> I know that what I focus upon is what I give my power to. Each of us has something that we focus upon in our life, whether it's pessimism, optimism, whatever, spirituality, anything we may choose. What I focus upon is what I'm going to give my power to. So I better be careful what I focus upon. And I believe with all my heart that if we have love, as John had and showed me, if we have love, it makes up for much that we don't have. But if we don't have love, I don't think anything makes up for that. Now, uh, I read a book of fiction one time, and in it uh, there was a conversation between Zacchaeus and Christ. And Christ said, Zacchaeus, what was it that made you desire this peace? And Zacchaeus said, why, Master, I saw mirrored in your eyes the person I was meant to be. And that is truly what I have seen in this program, in sharing and caring and being with you for 11 and a half years. I am more the person I was meant to be than I have ever been before. And I have seen in you the person I was meant to be. And I'm deeply grateful for that. And in closing, I would say this. My father one time sent me this poem and the last four lines of it go like this and I always think of our co-founders when I think of this he said uh, it is not what we add to the templed past but only how well we can hold it fast how grateful we keep it green and I am so grateful I am so grateful for my freedom you know when you are in bondage to the bottle, you have no freedom. It tells you, it told me, how to write my checks, never to the liquor store. It told me how I spent my money. It dictated my health. It dictated my uh, withdrawal from friends. It dictated my whole life. And now, I'm so grateful for my freedom, and I'm so grateful for each of you, and thank you for asking us. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for inviting Betty and me. <clears throat> Thanks to the committee that has put this wonderful affair together. Gee, you people are well organized. <coughs> it's a real privilege to be here. You've just heard uh, my present wife, the incumbent. <laughs> I use that term as it gets me a little more respect. Uh, Betty and I live in a little bitty town in Texas, and uh, we thank you all for this wonderful place and the weather you've arranged. Uh, 
My name is Bob Smith, and I'm an enthusiastic Al-Anon. I give you my full name because I think it's all right for me to break my anonymity with you, who are my people. And when you come to Nocona, Texas, and perhaps I can be of some service to you, you can look me up in the phone book. Okay, there's no Bob S's in the Nocona phone book. <coughs> I think we get too, uh, too anonymous sometimes. Uh, it's kind of like that new organization called Paranoia Anonymous. Uh, they won't tell anybody where they meet. <laughs> and even the area code is unlisted. <laughs> I think there's four things that I must do to be an Al-Anon. I think that I must work the steps. I think I must abide by the traditions. I think I must attend meetings regularly. And I think I must have a sponsor. And I do these things. Uh, I, my sponsor is one of those conference-approved Al-Anons. <laughs> my sponsor goaded me into service. I've been the GR and the DR, and I put in three years as a treasurer of the West Texas Assembly. And a couple of years ago, I got a call from the uh, New York Central Office of Al-Anon asking me if I would consider submitting my name as a candidate to be trustee at large for Al-Anon. And I seemed to have the educational requirements they were after. And uh, I prayed about it, and I uh, sent in and said I would be glad to have my name put on that list. And guess what, folks? I didn't get it. <laughs> <coughs> well, I'll tell you, I, I was... <laughs> I was hurt. You know, if they didn't want me, why did they ask me? <laughs> But the point that I'm making is my program came to my rescue because these programs will work in all facets of your life if you'll let it. And uh, I decided that whoever got that job was uh, infinitely better qualified than I and was probably capable of doing a much better job. And I, I released it. It's gone. doesn't bother me anymore. It works. I uh, appreciate all you young people here. You know, gang... I may not look like the role model, but I'm probably the original Alate. <laughs> I've been around some of you young people, and I realize that you have unusual problems. And I realize that sometimes we as Al-Anon don't support you like we should. Uh, you know, even getting to meetings is a problem with with uh, many of you and I want to thank you kids for sticking it out and if you folks ever want to find out how it really is you talk to these they'll tell you like it is <clears throat> although I've only been an Al-Anon a little over 11 years I'm somewhat of an anachronism and I'm the only person still living who was present when, present when the two co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous met at the home of Henrietta Cyberling on Mother's Day in Akron, Ohio 1935 my father is uh, Dr. Bob, and my mother's Anne, and I rode out with my father and mother to the home of Henrietta Syring, where Bill and Dr. Bob were to meet for the first time. I was a teenager at the time. I was old enough to know what was going on. Uh, my father had had a terrible hangover, and uh, my mother was the one that was a friend of Henrietta Syring, and she was the one that made the arrangement. My mother was a wonderful Al-Anon material. <coughs> My father said, 15 minutes of this guy is all I want. But it wasn't 15 minutes, folks. They went out and they talked many hours. He and Bill went off in a room by themselves. And as a result of that meeting, and at my mother's invitation, uh, Bill came and lived at our home all that summer. And this is the time and the place that Alcoholics Anonymous was started. And I noticed that there's a, a lot of you people that have come here on these scholarships and... Uh, I want to talk partially at least to you because this is a message of hope. These are happy programs. And uh, incidentally, I think that you people who have arranged for these scholarships and given so generously of yourself are carrying on one of the finest traditions of our movements, and that is you're showing accountability. Somebody gave it to you, you're willing to pass it on. I think that's one of the strongest points of our program. 
<clears throat> well, this was the most absolutely the most inconspicuous start of any movement that I could imagine. We lived in a very modest frame home in the middle of the last Great Depression in one industry town, Akron, Ohio, and it just fell flat on its face. There's strong men on the street selling apples for five cents apiece. There was tier after tier of repoed cars in the garages downtown. Nobody had much work. But maybe providentially, everybody had a lot of time for each other. And uh, I'd like to describe my father to you because my father was an MD. He first had been a uh, GP for years and then went back and studied under the uh, uh, Rochester, Minnesota, under the Mayo Brothers and became a surgeon. My father was like many of you. He loved medicine. He loved being a doctor. He was a tall, thin Vermonter. He had icy blue eyes, the type that could just look right through you. He was a uh, man's man. He could sustain himself in the woods up in New England, loved to do things like that. He was a very courteous man. Women felt comfortable around him because he was such a courteous man and because he dearly loved my father. He had a gorgeous sense of humor. When I brought Betty home, you saw her. She's tall and thin, and he looked her over and got me aside and said, she's built for speed and light housekeeping. <laughs> he was a man of relatively few words. When I was a teenager, uh, he got me up in the bathroom one day and gave me the sex and hygiene lecture, you know, the parents do. Closed the door, and we sat down, and he said to me, he said, uh, Flies spread disease, keep yours buttoned. <laughs> you know, you people would have loved Bill too. Bill was just the opposite of my father. Bill was garrulous, Bill was a promoter, Bill was a visionary, Bill's mood swung, he was either high as a Georgia pine or low as a snake and he never seemed to level out. My father was the steady one. He went along kind of on a pretty even keel, and these two guys fit together perfectly. I think it was providentially arranged that they be so different. They never had an argument. You know, if any two of us are exactly alike, one of us is unnecessary. <laughs> and I've heard this said that if AA had been left up to Dr. Bob Smith, it'd still be in Ohio. <laughs> and if A.A. had been left up to Bill Wilson, he'd have sold it to a franchise. <laughs> <clears throat> well, the first, uh, you know, these two guys only had two things going for them, folks, that I could see. They had an open spiritual mind and they had the desire for service. Now, you've got to understand that I don't believe they could have raised $50 between them. I really don't. But with the help of a Heavenly Father, I think these programs were allowed to progress. Uh, I want to tell you about the first one I remember, a young guy by the name of Eddie R. They, uh, Eddie had just been thrown out in the street with his cute little blonde wife and two kids for non-payment of rent. So they brought Eddie and family, the whole shebang, home, and... Uh, so that uh, Eddie would be available as Dr. Bob and Bill got this information, they locked him up in the bedroom. <clears throat> well, Eddie was an agile guy and we had downspouts. And Eddie would open the second story window, slide down the downspouts and escape. And they had to postpone Eddie's program long enough to recapture him. <laughs> Eddie got as far as Cleveland, Ohio one time, 35 miles away and called him up on the phone, collect to say that he was going to commit suicide, but that he would give him time to drive up and witness the event. <laughs> well, when they brought Eddie back, and uh, of course, you know, they kept Eddie up in the bedroom. They're downstairs thinking about it because they were trying, you know, nothing's written, folks. They're trying to stay one page ahead of Eddie. Is what <laughs> but Eddie had some very abnormal things that began to surface once he sobered up. He began uh, beating up on this cute little blonde wife he was married to, and then he began chasing my mother around the house with a butcher knife. So we held a group conscience meeting. <laughs> 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 and 
and it is decided the thing to do with Eddie was for his little wife to take him back to Ann Arbor, Michigan and recommit him in a mental institution. And this was done. And Dr. Bob and Bill were crestfallen. Here's their first attempt with another alcoholic, total failure. But I want to tell you folks something. At my father's funeral in 1950, a man walked up to me and he said, do you know me? And I said, yeah, I know you, you're Eddie. And he said, that's right. And he said, I'm a member of the Youngstown, Ohio group and I've been sober one year. <laughs> now that's 15 years later. So, I, the point I'd like to make with you, you never know the result of that 12-step call. You just don't know. You know, we're only called on to make the call. And I think the desire of the individual and our Heavenly Father will provide the results. I've made them, and I'm sure you have too, where, you know, just went in one ear and out the other. Uh, pretty soon it was pretty obvious. That the uh, I want to tell you folks that these this movement was not an easy thing. It was not an instant success. It, a lot of people did a lot of struggling and a lot of hard work and endured a lot of hardships. You know, our family was snubbed. We were taking these guys into our house and we were not very popular with the neighbors. <laughs> if you think it isn't so, you just start a halfway house at your home. <laughs> We even got kicked out of the Presbyterian Church on account of AA. The minister made it a special point to come by and ask us not to come back. Now, I never heard of anyone getting kicked out of the Presbyterian Church, but we were. So you see, it wasn't an easy thing. And uh, we owe a debt of gratitude to an organization called the Oxford Group. Bill had belonged to it for six months, my father and mother for two and a half years. And I'd like to talk to you just a moment about that because it's very, very important. A lot of the things that we use today were garnered from the Oxford Group. The Oxford Group was started by a Lutheran minister from Pennsylvania, and the basic tenet of it was back to simple spirituality. And they had four absolute, absolute honesty, absolute unselfishness, absolute purity of thought, and absolute love. They had a form of, uh, of a fifth step I used to go to some of those meetings with my parents. Uh, I have often wondered why. I think maybe it was to get out of the doghouse. You can't tell by looking at me now, but I was not a constant source of joy to my parents. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> and I would see them bring down the guy from upstairs. Four or five of them had taken a new guy upstairs, and they bore in on him, and they, they uh, made him uh, finally confess what his problem was. And then they went down and told everybody down there about it. Well. <clears throat> you see, it was inevitable that they separate. The Oxford group had uh, catered to the upper middle class, and believe you me, the early AAs were not upper middle class. The Oxford group wanted publicity, and the drunks had already had all the publicity they wanted. <laughs> the Oxford group was practicing this form of a fifth step, and that was not acceptable to people of the Catholic faith. You see, that was open confession. And I don't know whether you folks realize it or not, but there are Catholics that drink. <laughs> so finally, tearfully, and with lots of regrets and misgivings, the separation was made. But we do owe those people a tremendous, tremendous uh, vote of gratitude. <clears throat> it was just a trickle at first. Then uh, Jack Alexander's article, as Lynn has showed us. And then, uh, well, first an article in the Cleveland Plain Deer, then Jack Alexander's article. And then the word got out that there was an act, a doctor in Akron, Ohio, could, quote, fix drunks. And gee, they came out on a bus and on a train, <clears throat> dropped off by loving relatives. <laughs> dropped off by relatives who weren't so loving. <laughs> but again, I think providentially at the right time, our Heavenly Father provided the right person in the person of Sister Ignatius. Sister was the admitting nurse of a Catholic hospital in Akron there, St. Thomas. And she and Dr. Bob prevailed upon Father Haas, who was the head honcho of that hospital, to allow him to have a little alcoholic ward. And as many of you know, it was just the flower room. It had seven cots in it to start with. 
And now, as Lynn has showed you, it occupies the whole fifth floor. It's been in continuous service then. It's not that little flower room. It takes the whole fifth floor of that hospital. I, uh, I've thought about this and I wanted to talk to you about this. I think that God has seen fit to, through a series of nudging miracles, to allow this movement to prosper and not uh, destroy itself. You know, there were some earlier attempts at alcoholism and they destroyed themselves. And I think a part of that is due to their traditions. Now, Bill went around the country in 1946 stumping for these traditions. You know, and uh, groups then were like groups now. They said, now, Bill, you go on back to New York and run that. We'll run this here. And they wouldn't pay any attention to him. So at the first international in Cleveland in 1950, uh, my father and Bill got the whole organization together for the first time, and they agreed to accept these traditions. And I thank God for them because I think they're the glue that holds us together. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the miracles, I think. For instance, money. You know, Dr. Bob and Bill were human beings, and boy, did they need money. So they got the idea that they were going to have a little hospital, a little treatment center. And they even picked out an old Greystone mansion on North Portage Bath there in Akron. And I'm sure Dr. Bob could see himself in his white coat welcoming the patients. Bill probably out on the street flagging them in, you know. <laughs> so... Bill went back to New York and hit up Mr. Rockefeller and his group for money. Mr. Rockefeller and his group, in their, in, in their infinite wisdom, said, no, money will ruin it. Miracle. Property. A and Al Anon don't own any property, don't want to own any property. We're free to do what our primary purpose is, and that's to take that hand that reaches out for help. Anonymity. What a blessing. You know, in the early days, there were people with huge egos. Now, I know we don't have any of those anymore. <laughs> but you can't be Mr. AA or Mrs. Allen on if nobody knows what your name is. And what that has done, folks, that has allowed every one of us, whether you've been here 40 years or 40 minutes, we're all exactly the same. All exactly the same. And I consider that a miracle. God as we understood him. You know, that was put in the steps to quiet a loudmouth agnostic from California by the name of Jimmy B. Jimmy said this God stuff will ruin it. It'll run them out faster than we can run them in. So to quiet Jimmy down, they put God as we understood him. And you know what that's done, folks? That has allowed these programs to go into the Eastern religions people who have an entirely different concept of a higher power than perhaps you and me. Miracle. The big book of AA, written in the mid-30s, finally published in 1939. The first 164 pages are exactly the same as they were in the original printing, except for one word. They substituted the word awakening for experience, as far as the spiritual experience or spiritual awakening in the steps because Bill was the only one at that time that ever had a spiritual experience. Everyone else was going at it, you know, slowly and awakening. But how many texts do you good medical people have that was written in 1939 and never revised that you use every day? And have you ever thought of all the drunks that have taken a shot at that trying to find a loophole in an easier, softer way? <laughs> <laughs> You know, they couldn't give it away at first. Uh, Betty and I were in Seattle just uh, a month ago, and they presented Nell Wing with a 10 millionth copy. They turn them out now at the rate of a million a year. It's one of the five largest books ever published, and you can't even buy it in a bookstore. Miracle. <clears throat> I want to touch on... Uh, a subject, uh, you know, I was the first 17 years of my life I was raised in an alcoholic home, and uh, I've watched these programs, you know, ACA, COA, ACOA, and AAC all develop and 
And uh, at first I was kind of scornful of them, frankly. You know, condemnation prior to investigation will keep you forever ignorant. And I got to admit I was a little bit guilty there. But I realized that uh, most of us uh, reach adulthood with some uh, scars and some unresolved pain and perhaps need to seek solutions, and I hope we stay in solutions. Now, I want to say this, and I'm speaking only for myself, that I personally do not intend to remain forever frozen in the role of an injured adolescent. And I won't say more about that. Uh, Betty, as she told you, she went on to AA, and I wanted what she was, the changes that was happening to Betty. So someone said to me, well, why don't you go to Al-Anon? And I thought, why not? I don't mind joining the auxiliary. <laughs> <laughs> so I got in my car and I drove over to Gainesville, Texas, and I showed up at my first Al-Anon meeting. Lord, I was noble. You know, the rock that'd been holding the family together. Bloody but unbowed. Wounded, but still glorious. <laughs> Just enough knowledge about alcoholism to be absolutely dangerous. <laughs> and I really laid a trip on those gals. <clears throat> well, you got to understand that Betty and I had not even recognized alcoholism in our own home. Uh, you hate to admit you're that stupid, but we really were. But also, I must say this, not only were we stupid, but you must understand we were different. <laughs> yes, we were different. But anyway, I look around, I'm the only man. And I thought, uh-oh. I began getting mixed emotions about the Al-Anon program about that time. Uh, I think I can describe mixed emotions in a term you'll, uh, that you'll all understand with me. Uh, I think mixed emotions is kind of like that feeling you get when your teenage daughter shows up at four in the morning with a Gideon Bible under her arm. <laughs> but thank God for me, those ladies took me in and they were serious about their program and regardless of the fact that I was a man, and they were a woman, we still had the same program, we had the same problems, and we had the same recovery. And uh, Mary Lou's gang did me the same way in many of the meetings I attended. <coughs> I was the only man, and really they didn't uh, treat me any differently, and I thank God for them too. So I, I've got a few more minutes left, and I want to talk to you a little bit about recovery. A recovery has not been easy for us. As Betty said, we had some terrible resentments towards each other. We had a totally fractured relationship. We were just two people living in the same house. And we had to start rebuilding this damaged, wrecked relationship. And that's not an easy thing to do. I think it's easier to start a new relationship than to build that one back. We had to become acquaintances again. We had to become then friends again. We had to then become man and wife again. And then we had to become lovers again. And it hasn't been an easy road for us. Uh, I had to learn that healing love does not demand its own way. I used to think it had to be 50-50. Now I realize it can be 90-10, 10-90 in our relationship. And what's the difference? What really is the difference? Sometimes Betty gets on a dry drunk. Sometimes Bob gets on a dry dry. <laughs> and folks, when it happens at the same time, there's hell among the yearlings. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is our programs let us realize it when it happens and bring us back. And uh, A lot of things have gone a lot easier for us. Uh, we put carpeting in our bathroom the other day. And you know how good that feels on these cold winter nights on your bare feet. And we like it so well we're considering running it on into the house. <laughs> uh, 
I stay with my program because I'm learning to be more comfortable with myself. I stay in my program because I am learning more about myself. I stay in my program because it is helping me get rid of that squirrel cage thinking that I used to have that round and round and round without solutions. I stay in my program because I have learned with you folks and your kind help that when I let down the barriers and let you see me just exactly as I am, warts and all, and you do the same for me, I can be intimate with another human being. And we had a wonderful talk on intimacy. But when I can do that with you and you with me, as we can do, I can become intimate with another human being. And when I can do that, I'm no longer lonely. I've got to see, I know the despair of alcoholism in the home, active alcoholism. I got to see recovery twice in the home of my parents and in my own home the miracle of recovery and I know some of you young people new to the program and I'd like to address my closing remarks to you wonder can it work my problems are so great I just don't have anything to fall back on everything's gone I don't have the faith I don't have whatever it is I just don't think it's possible to make it and I would say to you young people, look around this room, you people that are new in the program. Every one of us here is a miracle. Every one of us. You've got your miracle still coming. Don't quit before your miracle. Thank you very much. We'd like to close in the usual way. Care to join hands? Whose Father, our Thank you.